Friends, let me invite you to take your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, you'll find this on page 855 of the Pew Bible in front of you. And I'll ask you to turn to Acts for what will be the final installment in our series on the hope of heaven. The final of these eight weeks focusing not on one particular book of the Bible, but on a major theme in the Bible. Trying to track that theme where it shows up across the sweep of the Bible and then learn from that theme for how it shapes our lives in the meantime. Uh, today we'll be talking about Acts 1, 6 to 8, but also several other texts that we'll be jumping around to over the course of our time there. While you're flipping, uh, let me also give you a little preview, a little uh, scenes from the next episode. Uh, what you can look forward to, not just next week, but for the next five weeks. I am thrilled to tell you that Jonathan Worsley is going to be preaching to us five weeks out of the book of Jonah, starting next week. Uh, this will be uh, our final opportunity to hear from our dear brother before he moves home across the pond to his, to his native island to begin the church that we are sending him out to, to begin along with other friends. And uh, this will be a, a precious time for us to be encouraged from him yet again after so many years soaking up the richness of God's word from him uh, and a chance to stir our hearts to continue to pray for him as he gets ready to open up God's word on the other side of the pond, which is still God's world, still full of God's people, and still full of others who need the hope that we have. So look forward to that, and please do be praying for Jonathan even now as he gets ready to preach to us for the next several weeks from the book of Jonah. Uh, for today, in Acts and other texts, we're going to focus on how the hope of heaven sets our mission as a church I don't know if you've put this together yet, but so far in our series on the hope of heaven, we've mostly been focusing on individual benefits that we enjoy because of the hope that we have uh, during our lives here in the meantime. And that's been appropriate to do because the Bible talks a lot about that. It talks a lot about how, how the, the promises we've been given feed our happiness now in the meantime and our holiness in the meantime and help us fight anxiety in the meantime and get through suffering in the meantime and bear up under grief in the meantime. And, and it's right to focus on all those individual benefits. Because God has given us hope to help us live lives that honor him. But the hope of heaven is so much more than individual comfort food. I mean, for one thing, it, it's a vision that involves the whole world. What's coming, what God has promised us is not like our own little pod where we have this direct pipeline to him to enjoy him all by ourselves forever. It, it's a whole renewed universe. It's, it's a people gathered around God's presence in God's place. It's a, it's a kingdom that'll never end. It's a city that'll come down from above with walls that nothing can breach. It's a family that feeds on God's goodness together. It is a multi-ethnic and multinational and multilingual community of redeemed sinners that worship God for all of eternity because he's worthy and because he's made them new. And all of it will happen in a world that's set right once and for all, a world of perfect justice without all the evil and oppression we're used to in this world. A world of, of completely restored relationships where sin isn't a factor anymore. A world of good work, a world of great fun, a world of rich worship, and all of it made better because you get to do it with other people. In the same way that it's better to, to be at a concert than to watch one on YouTube. It's better to be at a sporting event than to stream it on your phone. It's more immersive. It's more joyful. It's, it's just better to do these good things together. And that's what heaven will be. It's a corporate vision. 
And in the meantime, for us to succeed as a church, not as individuals, but as a church in the mission that he's given to us in his world, we have to look at our church from the perspective of heaven and not from the perspective of earth. It can be so easy for us to forget that the church has a mission from God that's set once and for all. That a a church is not a kind of outside the box, creative thinking organization where we figure out what to do for us and our time and our place. Though we come with a set of marching orders that God has given to us. And it can be all too easy to forget that, that if you're a Christian, the mission God has given to the church is your mission too. The purpose of your life as a follower of Jesus is set by the purpose Jesus has given to his church. Every so often I get to teach new members classes here at Edgefield. It's one of my favorite things to do. Uh, and if you haven't been to one yet, uh, there's one coming up. We've got another one coming in about three weeks, I think it starts up. You can find all about it on the back of the worship guide that you received on your way in here. And I'll give you a little preview one of the, and a little recap for those of you who've already been through it. One of the images that I like to use along the way in the, in the class to help make it as clear as possible what we're trying to do here as a church and, and, and what we're not trying to do is a contrast between a cruise ship and a crew team. A cruise ship and a crew team. When you're evaluating whether or not you want to board a cruise ship, what kind of things are you typically looking at? You're going to look at how's the water slides up on the top deck. Those are the things my kids are always paying attention to in the ads for the cruise ships that we see during football games. They're looking at like, you know, how, how, are, the, how are the roller coasters up there on the top deck? Or like, what's the food and how many different options are there? Is it a five-star rated chef that's preparing my meals or something less than that? Where is it going to stop? What ports of call? Do I want to go to those places and visit them? What, how, how are the amenities in the rooms? Is the bed comfortable? Will I, will I be able to get a, a, a suite that can, that can separate my kids from me when I need some space? You're looking at amenities. You're looking at services. You're looking at the things that this cruise ship will bring to you to make your experience on board as, as good as possible. And all along the way, you're looking at bang for buck. Can I get something more here for my dollars than I could get on that one over there for the same money? It's easy to evaluate a church as if you're boarding a cruise ship. Or what you're looking for is services and amenities. What you're looking for is a fit between what you like, what you appreciate, what you're, what you're hoping to experience, and what this particular church can offer. And when we, we're just hardwired to think like that because we, we live in America where we have consumer choices in just about every area of our lives. It's just something we bring with us into any kind of association that we have. But my goodness... When you approach your local church from the perspective of earth as just one more venue in which to make sure you're living your best life now, you're getting as much bang for your buck as you can for as long as you, you think that, that, that it's worth being here, you're going to miss out on the, on the mission that God has given with heaven as its backdrop. When, when, you, when you see the local church in light of where God is taking us and how he's getting us there, then you realize that to, when, when you're thinking about joining a church, you're not deciding which kind of cruise line to board. You're, you're thinking more about boarding, about joining a, a crew team. You know, in a crew team, a crew team is, of course, one of those really, really long rowing teams, right? Usually in colleges. And I don't, I don't know if there's 
crew teams around here in Nashville. You normally have to do this thing for the one window of time when you've got the health to do it and some sort of options for doing it. But you join a crew team, you, you know, you're going to have an oar in your hands. Whether or not that ship gets where it's going is going to depend somewhat on the strength of your back and your arms. And you're going to want to know where is it going because whether or not somebody's aiming us in the right direction is going to be the difference between us getting there ahead of everyone else or, or not. You need to know what is this team doing? What would my role be on this team? And is this a team that I'm supposed to be on? Because it's purpose-driven. Because all the relationships on that team aim at something bigger than any one person who's on it. And with the hope of heaven as our backdrop, what I hope you'll see is that our life together as a church is not really about the amenities and the services. There's an urgency to it. What we're doing matters for all of eternity. The hope of heaven also sets our focus. It shows us what it is that we're supposed to be doing and gives us the hope to go for it, even when it costs us something. What I want to do today is try to help you see how to connect what we're doing together as a church now to what God has promised to do when Christ comes again. How the hope of heaven shapes the message we share with others, that'll be point one, and the life we share together, that'll be point two. How the hope of heaven sets our mission as a church in shaping the message that we share with others and the life that we share together. I want to begin by reading from Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. Please stand with me in honor of God's word while I do that. This is the word of the Lord. So... When they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. This is God's word. You can be seated. How does the hope of heaven set our mission as a church? Well, first, it shapes the message that we share with others. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, is one of four places where Jesus leaves his followers with a summary of what he wants them to do when he's gone. Earlier this week, I heard someone try to draw a thread through these four places and showed me in a fresh and clearer way how in each place, Jesus focuses on the same basic set of information, what they're supposed to do, where they're supposed to do it, and how they're gonna get it done. What they're supposed to do, where they're supposed to do it, and how they'll get it done. He says, what you're supposed to do is to, as Acts 1.8 puts it, be my witnesses. As Matthew 28 puts it, make disciples. As Luke 24 puts it, proclaim my death, my resurrection, the forgiveness of sins for all who repent. What you're supposed to do is get this message out. Where are you supposed to do it? Well, right where you are, where God has put you in Jerusalem. You can start there, but, but you don't stop there. You go to Judea, you go to Samaria, you go to the ends of the earth. Every one of these texts has the, the whole world as its scope. And you'll get the job done because I'm going to give you power to do it. 
I'll be with you, Jesus says in Matthew 28. When the Spirit comes on you, you'll have power for this, Acts 1.8. It's the same mission given each time, and it's our mission today. And what does the hope of heaven have to do with this message-sharing global mission that we've been given power to accomplish? I see two ways the hope of heaven impacts this mission. It clarifies our role in what God is doing, and it encourages us to pay the cost. It clarifies our role, and it encourages us to pay the cost. And when God sent his power into his people, it was to be witnesses to the coming kingdom. It was not to build heaven on earth. That's how the hope of heaven clarifies our role. Jesus is so clear about this in Acts 1.8. Our role is to share the message of hope and peace through Christ, not to build the world we invite people to enjoy. I mean, we know, I mean, just from the last eight weeks in this series, we've seen breathtaking promises all over God's word about the world God has promised to deliver, about what he's got planned for the future of his people. And we've barely scratched the surface. When God makes all things new as he's promised to do, What will be left behind is a world of perfect joy and perfect justice and perfect peace where there's no more oppression and no more war and nobody ever gets hurt. No one ever has to be afraid. No one will ever be taken advantage of or left behind. No one will ever be sad. They won't be sick. They won't be hungry and no one will ever die. That's the kind of world that he's promised to build. And if you're a Christian this morning, you ought to be longing for that world. Your heart ought to be pounding for that world you ought to be praying for that world just like Jesus taught you to when he said pray your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven but just as we long for that world to come just as we just as we ought to be praying every single day that it'll come we're going to face a temptation that is just all too common and has been ever since Jesus first gave this commission we're going to be tempted to confuse God's role in bringing that future to bear and our role. We're going to be tempted to put our hands toward making all things new, which is God's job. And then in in, in trying to do his job, we may forget to be witnesses to what's coming, which is our job. You can see that temptation already coming to the surface just right here in the context of Acts 1-8. Back in verse 3, if you've still got it open to Acts 1-8, your Bible open, look up at verse 3. Back in verse 3, Luke sums up what Jesus was doing with his time after he rose from the dead, before he went back to heaven. Luke says that he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. All right, here's a dead man who's alive again. He's got the scars to prove that he was dead, but he's obviously alive. He's, He's eating, he's talking, he's interacting with them. And what he's talking to them about is the same thing he spent his life talking to them about, the kingdom of God that has come and is coming. Now, can you imagine what it would be like to be taught about the kingdom of God from a resurrected body that you watched crucified and buried? Can you imagine what, you must have, what they must have been thinking as they heard him talk about the kingdom? I'll tell you what they were thinking. Game on. Here we go. This is it. Finally, it's here. So when they, in verse 6, ask a question of Jesus, to me, it's the, the obvious question. 
Look at verse 6. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Is this it? They knew what the prophets had said about the coming kingdom. But man, it would have been one thing to read those prophets' words in a weekly synagogue meeting as a child. Or maybe memorize some of those words and pray over them as an adult. But when you hear those prophets' promises explained to you from a man who was dead and now lives again. And it's the man who says to you, I'm the king. I'm the one you've been waiting for. I'm the chosen one, the Messiah, the anointed one. I am David's greatest. He's telling them all of that. Surely all their hope for that kingdom is now zeroed in on this one body, this resurrected man standing right in front of them. Of course they want to know, is this it? Is it time? Should we grab the swords? Let's do this. Surely now we overthrow the Romans. Surely now we establish perfect justice once and for all. Surely now the graves are going to give up their dead. Surely now the kingdom has come, right? This is it. And then look how Jesus redirects his friends. It's gentle, but it's clear. And we need to hear it too. He said to them, it's not for you to know. It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority That new world, that kingdom, it's his to bring on his time. That's not your job. But you do have one. Verse 8. But, that's not yours to do, but you will receive power and you will be my witnesses while we wait. I love the simple clarity of that verse. All their hope for the coming kingdom had zeroed in on this one person who was dead and is now alive, who's teaching them about that kingdom. And now that person zeroes all of their responsibility down to the simple command to be his witnesses until he comes again. It's my job to establish my kingdom, his words imply. It's your job to tell others it's coming and to invite them to repent and to believe. The reason Jesus gives us this job, this witness-bearing job, the reason he hasn't called us to, to take up arms and, and, and try to fight our way towards a new world or, or even to take up the, the, the kinds of things that that new world will involve, like better medical care and better, better more perfect, just laws and let that be how we contribute to his kingdom is that no one gets to enjoy his kingdom apart from repentance and faith. You, unless you embrace what Jesus has already done, you can't enjoy what he's going to do. There's only one way into this kingdom and it comes through, through claiming by faith the work Jesus has done to make it accessible to you. The only people who enjoy that kingdom are those who bow the knee to Jesus and accept him for all he's provided to them. Here's how Jonathan Lehman puts this in what is the church's mission. He says, apart from conversion, everything else is ultimately for naught. You can solve pollution and global warming You can stop abortion, resolve all racial inequity, end global hunger, provide refuge for every victim of abuse and trafficking, negotiate peace treaties, and indeed gain the whole world. And all things being equal, a full stomach is better than an empty one. Yet Jesus might still reply, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? 
Friends, there are plenty of wonderful biblical reasons to put our effort behind passing better laws, behind building better schools, behind providing better health care in our communities. God has been so clear in telling us to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. He has given us a beautiful model for what that looks like and called us to live into it as disciples of Jesus who loved people so well. But we can't share the benefits of God's kingdom through better laws or better schools or better health care. Those benefits come only through repentance and faith. And that's why, that's why every local church is given the job of serving like an embassy from the future. Full of ambassadors who speak for a coming king. A message that that king gave them to share with anyone who will listen. Our job is to be his witnesses. To say, that kingdom is coming and you can enjoy it. You can get in on this kingdom. Jesus has made it available to you. Come on in. Come on in. Join us. Be witnesses right alongside us. Our job is to tell people what he offers and to plead with them to accept it. That's how the hope of heaven, knowing what's coming, gives us clarity for our role in the meantime. But the hope of heaven doesn't just tell us what to do. It also encourages us to pay the cost of doing the thing Jesus has given us to do. It's easy to talk about being a witness. It's, it's really hard to be one. I, you don't mean to me to tell you that. It, it can be intimidating to share your faith with other people because you know, especially if you've tried it, that it can actually hurt your standing with people sometimes. It can make things weird. It can make things awkward. It can knock you down a rung or two in the social ladder. I don't know how you get past the many barriers that there are to sharing your faith with somebody else unless you've got a real clear vision of the hope of heaven and, you're, and, and you really, really don't want them to miss out on it. Unless you see it as so much more important and consuming than anything else you might be able to squeeze out of this world and, and unless you want to see them see what you've seen about Jesus. It costs a lot to share your faith with us. You know, it costs a lot to be part of this global mission that Jesus has given us. And every single one of those commissions that I mentioned before, it, it expands outward from where you are to the ends of the earth. Our church has, has the mission of taking the gospel to places that Jesus isn't known yet. It hurts to do that. It hurts to go. This week I got to, I got to do a video chat with Mitchell and Amanda uh, and their new baby, James, for the first time. So Mitchell and Amanda, if you're visiting with us this morning, are members of our church who, for the sake of this mission, have moved their whole lives to Turkey to, to support the work of local churches that, that are, are just getting off the ground in places that haven't had Christian presence for centuries. It's incredible to be part of this. It's beautiful. And what a joy to see them thriving over there. But it isn't easy for them. I mean, praise God for the tech that, that gave us the chance to talk, you know, and gave me the chance to see them, to see their growing family, see this precious baby boy and pray over him. But man, it would have been good to make a hospital visit to see him. And I'm just thinking about what I lost in the fact that they were over there. For them, can you imagine what it's cost them to enter parenthood thousands and thousands of miles away from their family and their friends? There's no meal trains headed their way. There's no grandparents staying over to help out in the early days. There's no permanent painted nurseries that they can 
pad with all the stuff that they got from their baby showers. There's no Mother Day Out programs in their future. Whatever else comes with being parents in your, in your home culture. The joy of sharing that with your friends and your family. They have given up. And I think I can speak on their behalf and say that it's because they'd rather see Jesus worshipped in heaven by a bunch of Turks and Persians that they have, that they have loved as their neighbors than be with their friends and family at the birth of their first child. It's the hope of heaven that made that cost bearable for them. They're glad to pay it. Jesus is worth it. So are these new friends they've made. I don't know how we can bear the cost of sending people like Mitchell and Amanda if we don't have the hope of heaven in front of us, knowing that what we're doing here will go on forever there. I mean, one of the most exciting things for me right now in the life of our church is the chance that we've got to send our friends to begin a new church in a city and a country that needs a lot more of them. We talked a little bit about that earlier. Something you're going to hear a lot more about as we ramp up towards sending them this spring and summer. And it is just a dream come true to be able to be part of this. But you know it means sending some of my favorite people in the world something like 4,000 miles away from here. That's going to be a long commute for them to make it back for Sunday worship each week, wouldn't it? Is it going to happen? That's not easy to do for a church that depends so much on people like those we'll send to Exeter. And if this world is everything and life is short, you know, you just keep your people close, right? You keep your friends as close as you can. You squeeze as much as you can out of these brief moments that we have. You build a nest and you pat it and you make sure that there's nothing to threaten it. But if you think life is short and eternity is long, if you know that, that, that in heaven there's no more goodbyes, that as bad as those hurt now, they don't last forever, that Christ is going to pull that sting someday, then you can get through goodbyes now in the hope of what's to come. And you can do it precisely because what you want more than comfort, more than, more than convenience, more than familiarity, what you want is to be in the presence of Jesus with people whose names you don't know yet, who now live in a city without enough churches to get the gospel to them. It's worth it to take up our mission as much as it might cost us because we trust that heaven is our future, that we're going there together, that Jesus will make sure of it. And if we focus on our job, he'll take care of his. The hope of heaven sets our mission as a church in that it shapes the message we're meant to share with others. And along the way, gives us the hope to actually follow through on sharing it. That's the first way in which the hope of heaven sets our mission as a church. Now I want to show you a second way. The hope of heaven also shapes the life that we share together. Not just the message that we share with others, but the life that we share together. Our words about the king and his kingdom, they get supported by a life that we live together under his rule. In fact, the, the, our life together as a church is part of our mission. I want to show you at least two ways that the hope of heaven is central to our life together in the meantime. Two ways in which its hope sets our, our mission to show what's coming and to help each other get there. Here are the two ways. Through our love, through our love, we offer a picture of heaven. Our relationships here are meant to show what heaven is like. 
to give a glimpse on earth of an eternal world of love that's coming. And through our friendships, we help each other get there. Through our love, we offer a picture of heaven. Through our friendships, we help each other get there. Number one, through our love, we offer a picture of heaven. I know you don't need me to tell you that the New Testament is chock full of commands to love one another. That's one of the main things that we're told as, uh, as examples of what it looks like to follow Jesus in the context of a church. A lot of times those commands tie back to something from the past, to how Jesus' love for us shapes our love for each other. You'll see that all over the place. But, but I wonder if you've ever noticed that sometimes the command to love one another is tied not to what was, but to what will be. Commands that, that look ahead to the new world that God has promised and to what that world will be like. Our love for each other in the life of a local church is part of our witness to the kingdom that Christ will build. A world of love that is perfect, unblemished by sin and never, ever ending. I think the best place to see that vision is actually in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, one of the most famous chapters in all the Bible. And I want to ask you to turn over there with me because I want to show you some things about this beautiful chapter and how it affects our mission as a church. 1 Corinthians 13 falls right between two chapters about spiritual gifts, about what happens in the life of a church when God's spirit comes upon them with power, just like Jesus promised back in Acts chapter 1. And the Corinthians, they were all about setting themselves apart. They loved status. They were proud. They liked things that people could see and therefore envy. So when they thought of spiritual gifts, the ones at the top of their list were the ones everybody could notice, the ones that couldn't be denied. Things like tongues that they didn't know. Things like prophecies that everyone was cowered by. They liked, they liked these commanding, speaking gifts that brought all sorts of attention. And what Paul is telling them in this letter is to get over themselves. He's telling them in chapter 13 that the gift that matters most is love. You can have tongues and no love and you've got noise. That's what you've got. You can have prophecy and knowledge, but no love. What you've got is empty and pointless and useless. Love is the gift that opens all the gifts. And the reason that love matters so much is that love never ends. Look with me near the end of the chapter. Paul ties the primacy of love to the permanency of heaven. Pick up with me in verse 8. Love, he says, never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it'll pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. In other words, we aren't going to need the gifts you're so enamored with forever. In fact, Paul then goes on to compare those gifts to what he had when he was a kid. Look at verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. What is he saying? He's saying that love matters most now in the life of a church because perfect love is our future. He's tying the whole chapter to what's coming. 
Those who are so enamored with gifts like tongues and prophecy and knowledge, they were stuck on things that as wonderful as they might be just simply aren't going to last. We don't even need them forever. And along the way, they're just completely missing this treasure that goes on forever. I think that's why Paul goes back to his own childish ways and how those yielded to maturity. He's, basically, he's telling them, you guys are acting like kids. Kids overvalue some gifts and undervalue others. No offense, kids. But you guys do this. You definitely do this. Toddlers spend Christmas morning playing with cardboard boxes. Every three-year-old I've ever known would choose a ring pop over a diamond ring. How many eight-year-olds do you know that would choose Nintendo stock options over a Nintendo Switch if they don't ever already have one? Paul wants the Corinthians to grow up because they're valuing the wrong gifts for the wrong reasons. They want flash. They want a boost in status here and now. They want more out of life in this world. Paul's saying we won't always need those gifts. Even faith and hope won't be necessary forever. Paul doesn't tell us here why, why the greatest of those three great virtues, faith, hope, and love, is love. But I've been convinced by a test that one commentator named C.K. Barrett puts to each one of those great virtues. Does God have faith, he asks? No. God doesn't need faith. For now, faith is how we cling to salvation, but one day our faith is going to be turned to sight and we won't need it either. Does God have hope? Nope. God doesn't need hope. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He knows exactly what he's doing, and he knows exactly how he's going to do it. And for now, though we live on hope, though for now we're looking ahead to all sort of promises that haven't been fulfilled yet, one day we aren't going to need hope anymore either. We're going to experience for ourselves, with our own eyes, in our own hearts, in renewed bodies, we'll experience all the things we've been waiting for. And we won't need hope anymore. But what about love? Friends, God doesn't just have love. God is love. In his very being, he is love. For now, we see something of his love, like, like in a mirror, dimly, as Paul puts it. But one day, we'll see him face to face. And on the day when he appears, as John put it in 1 John 3, we're going to be like him because we'll see him as he is. And when we see God as he is and are made like him, what will we be like? We will be loving. We will be purely, perfectly loving. Love is the greatest of the gifts and the purpose of all the gifts because God is love and because love is our future. And in the meantime... In our life together as a church, love is where you can taste and see heaven on earth. Love is at the center of our mission. Friends, heaven is going to be a world of perfect love without fear, without envy, without resentment, without pride in any of its ugly forms. And our job now is to give a little taste of that heavenly world and how we care for each other 
here in our world. The best taste anyone can ever get of heaven on earth is in a love that says in a thousand ways, large and small, my life for yours. I'll give my life for yours. Live you living on mission for as long as the Lord gives you life means you looking for ways to lay down your life for your friends. Hey, Paul's list in 1 Corinthians 13 is actually a pretty good place to start. Have you ever thought of yourself as advancing the mission of our church through your patience? Love is patient. When you're patient, especially when people are hard to love, you're picturing heaven on earth and moving our mission forward. Love is kind. When you share food with someone who needs it, when you give a ride to someone who needs one, and in a thousand ways, large and small, that you are showing kindness to one another, do you know you are in that kindness, advancing the mission of our church? You are giving a taste of heaven on earth every time. When you keep no record of wrongs because Jesus didn't, you advance the mission of our church with a love that is pure and selfless. When you endure all things for your friends, even when they take a lot out of you, just like Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him, you advance the mission of our church. You picture what heaven will be like. You show a love that's eternal. You are getting a jump start on your entire future. When you work and pray for a love like this, you are advancing the mission Jesus has given to us and offering a preview of a beautiful world to come. So keep on. I am so encouraged by how I see you loving one another. I've never been more encouraged by what I see in our church and how you care. Friends, it is a beautiful thing that brings honor and glory to Jesus and it is faithfulness to the mission he has given you. How does the hope of heaven shape our life together? Well, it, it's through our life together that we give a picture of what heaven will be like. That's our target. And the last thing I want to encourage you with, the last way in which the hope of heaven shapes our life together as a church, is that it's through the friendships, through our friendships, that we help each other to get there. The purpose of our life as a church, the mission we've been given in our life with one another is to put our arms around one another and help each other get all the way home. This is a theme that's right at the heart of one of my favorite books of all time, one of the best, most beloved Christian books of all time, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Many of you will be familiar with this book. If you, if you aren't yet, I, I can strongly recommend it. It's worth your time. Really clunky language. I apologize for that in advance, but man, it's worth the effort because it is so rich and such a powerful example or description of what the Bible describes as, a, as the Christian life and how it's supposed to be lived. It's a, an allegory. It's a story that captures a lot of the main themes of what the New Testament teaches us about our lives as Christians. And in this allegory, there's a central character named Christian who, gets, who hears the message that we've been charged to give when he's living in the city of destruction. He believes it, he embraces it, and he sets out on a journey from that place to the celestial city, which is heaven. 
His whole life is lived on the journey to heaven. All the ups and downs, all the twists and turns, all aimed at getting to that place. And my favorite character in this story is actually not Christian, the main character, but his friend, Hopeful, who's with him for most of the journey, walking beside him along the way, building him up in the hope of the gospel. So Christian's friend's Hopeful, who's there to encourage him when he's low, as he often is. It's Hopeful who's there to to warn him when he's tempted, as he sometimes is. It's Hopeful who holds him up when he's weak, who keeps his eyes focused on where they're all headed. It's Hopeful whose arms are around him, helping him get there all the way. My favorite scene in this story is actually near the end of Christian's journey. They reach this place where they can actually see the celestial city up on a hill. But between them, where they stand, and that city where they're going is a rushing river that scares them to death. It is death. It represents the grave. Christian sees that river and his hope leaves him. He's overwhelmed by doubt. When he and Hopeful step down into the river, almost immediately he goes down. He can't find the bottom. His feet won't touch. He's bobbing up and down for air. He's completely convinced he's not going to make it through. But step by step, Hopeful is right next to him. Hopeful is saying to him, I can feel the bottom. It's good. It's solid. It's there. Put your feet down. It's Hopeful who's there reminding him in his doubts of God's promises, that God has promised to see him through, that when he passes through the waters, he will not be overwhelmed. It's Hopeful who's feeding him on the hope of the gospel when he can't see it for himself. And it's through Hopeful's friendship, his arms around Christian while he's drowning, that he makes it through, that he finds his footing, that he climbs out on the other side and reaches his home. It's a beautiful picture of what our mission is in each other's lives for as long as we're part of this church. A local church is simply a group of Christians who've promised to help each other follow Jesus all the way from here to glory. That's what a church is. It's a group of Christians who say, okay, I'll help you, you help me. We'll follow Jesus together all the way home. Think about our friendships in the church as God's delivery system for his children to his eternal kingdom. I'm not making this up. Bunyan wasn't either. You can see this all over the New Testament. We saw it last week in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 where we looked at how Paul encouraged people with their grief. They'd lost some of their loved ones. They were hoping Jesus would come back before their friends and family had died. It didn't happen. They had to bury them. And now they're thinking, what, what, what do I do? Are, are they going to miss out? How can I face a future without them? Paul reminds them, no, when Jesus comes back, he's going to raise them up. All your loved ones who've died in faith, they will be with you again. Jesus will make sure of it. He tells them about the day of the Lord that'll come like a thief in the night to stay ready, to stay watching, to stay alert. And then he handed over to them the work he was doing in that letter. What he was doing in the letter was encouraging them when they were low with the hope of the gospel. He finishes that whole section by saying, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another and build one another up just as you were doing. Now it's over to you. There's your job for as long as you live. Encourage one another with these words. Or I think of, I think of the warnings in the letter to Hebrews. These stunning and sobering warnings about, about the danger of falling away. Hebrews warns us against what happened to Israel in the wilderness 
who after they'd experienced so much good from God in Egypt, then so quickly fell away in the wilderness. Hebrews 3 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. How do we protect against that, Paul? How do we keep one another from falling? Verse 13 says, Exhort one another every day. That's how you keep it from happening. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be harmed by the deceitfulness of sin. Friends, there is a whole world of hard conversations built into those verses. I don't care which side of the conversation you're on. If there's something to be flagged, if there's a warning to be given, if there's a sin to confront, even just a probing question to raise, it is no fun for anybody, whether you're giving that care or receiving it. I'd so much rather just talk about baseball. But if we see each other as brothers and sisters in a dangerous time, trudging through a wilderness as Israel did, full of threats and temptations. If we know we are as vulnerable by ourselves as they were, then we'll see we don't have a choice. We can't live with what silence would mean for, for these people that we love. Or think about even just what Hebrews says about how the hope of heaven affects our Sunday gatherings each week. Hebrews 10 says that every single gathering has heaven as its backdrop. Let us consider how to stir each other up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You hear that? When we come together to worship every single week, week after week after week, we come to encourage each other and we don't stop coming because we know we need it and we know our friends need it too. But we don't come as consumers. We come as providers. Every Sunday we are singing our way and praying our way and reading our way and preaching our way to one another one week closer to the day that is drawing near. We can't live without that. So we keep doing it. We don't forsake it. This purpose for Christian friendships, you're going to find it all over the New Testament. Our growth in faith is a group project. It's all hands on deck. So is our perseverance in faith. Our friendships are God's delivery system for his children to his kingdom. And that is not easy work to do. It does cost us to do it. It can be time consuming and frustrating. But the question is never, wait, what am I getting and is it worth the cost? It's what would I be willing to put up with for the chance to help this person get all the way home? This perspective, I, I don't know of a better guard for our hearts against a cruise ship mentality in a local church or a better spur to seeing yourself as part of a crew team that needs you than knowing that we are, we are responsible for helping each other across the river like Hopeful did for Christian. We're not just going to turn a church into one more venue for living our best lives now. We're not here for that. Our king has given us a mission. He's the king who died and rose for us. So who cares whether the band is playing your favorite song in just the way you like it? Who cares whether there's a climbing wall for your kids in the youth wing? Who cares whether you're getting as much as you're giving in the relationships that you have in the church? We aren't here for our best lives now. Those things don't register with us. We've got bigger fish to fry. We're here to bear witness to Jesus through the words we speak and the love we share. We're here to make sure our friends get across the river. That's the perspective that heaven brings to our life. That is its urgency, but also its wonderful clarity. And that is the work you've committed to do 
as part of this church to do our life together in the hope of Isaiah 25, the feast that is spread for all peoples where death is swallowed up on the menu, where there is no more crying because God wipes away every tear and where we say on that feast across the table to one another, behold, this is our God. We've waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in our salvation. Friends, that's our future and all of our life aims at that day.